Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. We are in 1 Kings chapter 19 this evening. And if you were here with us last week, we had Randy speaking, and he um, dealt with that very big chapter where the prophet Elijah shows down with the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. And that he did a great job, I think, of sort of setting the scene for us and building the suspense. And we saw that episode where um, you all know the story, but I'll just catch you up. Elijah sort of stands off against the prophets of Baal and they are there sort of dancing and working themselves up into a frenzy, trying to get Baal to bring the fire down. Um, the God of Elijah, Yahweh, humiliates the prophets of Baal when he burns up Elijah's offering in front of them. And then all the false prophets of Baal are slain. Elijah prays to the Lord and miraculously this drought that has been going on for three and a half years is over. It's a great victory, a great story full of suspense and the miraculous and judgment. And it's a, it's a real sort of high point in the ministry of Elijah. And most people are familiar with that story in some ways. And um, I thought it was really fun to see the slides that Randy had on from Mount Carmel. And those of you who are coming to Israel with us, um, we, we will be studying that text on that mountain, looking at those views that we saw last time. So um, it's great that we've had a bit of background into this. But now we move into 1 Kings 19, which is a bit of a different chapter. So let's just pray and uh, we'll, we'll get into this. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. I'd ask now that you would use just the words of my mouth, Lord, to glorify you, to edify the saints, Lord God, and to just expound on the things and the truths found in your word. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Okay, so let's turn to 1 Kings 19. Uh, I'm calling this study the aftermath. So what we're going to see is what happens immediately after this great event on Mount Carmel. So let's read verses 1 to 4 together. It says, Now Ahab... Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. So this is a dramatic come down, we could say, from the great victory that he's had. Now what's happened here? He's, you know, within days of defeating the prophets of Baal in this great showdown, he's cowering in the wilderness alone and asking to die, basically. Now that is a dramatic change. So immediately there are some lessons we can learn from this. All servants of the Lord are vulnerable to this sort of thing. Even the best, or we consider to be the best, or people we may assume are the best, are vulnerable to having times in the valley, times when they haven't got it together, times of depression, times of deep doubt, times of struggle. These are all things that are common to the Christian. Um, you see, if someone as faithful as Elijah can seemingly go through these sort of dark nights of the soul, um, I'd say we all must be prepared for that at some point in our Christian life. One of the things we are not very good at, particularly in, the Western, in Western Christianity, is um, 
We like to elevate people into positions of leadership, maybe at too young a age. There is a specific warning about that that you find in the Bible. Do not lay hands on anyone too early, unless you know, it's easy to tempt them, it basically is the point that it's making. But we also, we put a lot of hope in what we call Christian leaders, or maybe Christian celebrities, if I can use that phrase. The big name teachers, the guys with the big books, the public ministries, the TV shows, all these sorts of things. Now, we've seen this very publicly recently, the dangers of doing this sort of thing. I'm sure many of you have, have kind of aware of some of the things I'm going to mention in the news. Joshua Harris, does anyone know that name? He wrote a very famous book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. It was 1997, so it was kind of that, that era of Christianity, and it is really responsible for a lot of what is called purity culture. Now, when I first became a Christian and I started meeting Christians, particularly American Christians, now I realize that how impacted America was by this book. It was a best-selling book, millions and millions of copies sold. Um, it was no dating was the whole point of it. No, no touching, no holding hands, no being in the same room together. These very strict rules that were particularly for the American church. Now, I'm not saying there's not wisdom in some of these things, but this is where it came from. The guy was 21 when he wrote this book. Okay, he really should have had a bit more counsel, I believe, at this time. But it did a lot. You know, it had a huge impact on the American church and on the wider evangelical movement. I, I actually had a copy of it many years ago in my bookshelf. Thankfully, I it was one I wasn't really interested in. I didn't have time to read. And it's, I don't know where it is now. Um, but anyway, so over the years, this man, Joshua Harris, had received so many emails of people telling him how much they were hurt by the book. Um, you know, people who were not able to actually get to know the people that they ended up marrying. You may notice that in some cultures in Christianity, you date, then you marry within like a few weeks. And unfortunately, I'm not saying that's wrong necessarily, but if we've been in church any amount of time, you know that the divorce rate in the church is not really much different than the divorce rate in the world, which is not something that should be the case. I'm not saying it's all because of Joshua Harris. I'm just saying this was the sort of culture and the things that were happening. Now, after getting so many of these sorts of emails, just recently, in the last sort of four, four months, I believe, he's come out and he said that he admits he wouldn't ever write that book again. The book's been recalled. He's renounced everything that he taught in there, which you may think is a good thing. However, the story goes on. Not only has he renounced his book, he's also now divorced his wife, and he's also renounced his faith in Jesus Christ. He's a, he was a megachurch pastor, basically, in America. Um, in a few weeks ago, this let me read to you his final tweet. This was just last week, I believe. He says, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me there is, no di there is a different way to practice faith and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. I'm not sure what he means by that, but that's the thing. He kissed dating goodbye, kissed his wife goodbye, and ultimately he kissed Jesus goodbye. Now, I don't say this to sort of say, look, as an object lesson, it is an object lesson, but obviously it's a tragic one. It's quite heartbreaking and very concerning for us in the church. We need to look at questions about why, why these things are happening. Now, we know there's an enemy that seeks to destroy us, you know, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. Um, I would say he was put into a position of leadership too soon. I would say that someone who's 21 and is not married writing a book on dating and marriage I think the elders of his church should have, he should have obviously had better counsel, I believe. 
Um, on and on we could sort of speculate, but that's not really the point I'm making. That's just one example of this sort of thing. Let me give you another one that just happened literally in the last week. How many of you know this song? I'll sing the lyrics. I'm not going to, I'll speak the lyrics. I'm not going to sing them. I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my saviour on that cursed tree. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing your praise, O Lord, O Lord, our God. I hope, hopefully you all know the tune and you all know that song. This was written by a man called Marty Sampson. He's one of Hillsong's biggest worship leaders. Um, he's written some great worship songs, and I'm not having a dig at Hillsong here. They, they have had some good songs, but just in the last week, um, he renounced his faith also. He says this. One, he said a lot of things. I'll read you a couple of quotes. He said, How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love and yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Now, you see, I read something like this. and I've read, There was a lot more and it kind of carried on in the same vein. And to me, I'm just thinking, what Christian world was he living in? I mean, my whole library is full of, of people specifically discussing these sorts of things. In fact, the, basically the whole of Western civilization and philosophy is filled with people, right from sort of Augustine to Aquinas to Anselm to all the way through to modern philosophers specifically dealing with these sorts of problems. So I find this to be a little, not dishonest, and maybe he has never encountered it. So I want to ask the question, what sort of Christian world was he living in? It was definitely not one of discipleship. It was definitely not one of asking questions like Jesus did. And I would say it was maybe because Hillsong being as large as they are and having a very specific focus on worship, this is a trait that we see. A lot of the worship songs have bad doctrine or very shallow doctrine. And it's just not an environment, I believe, that he was ever exposed to some of this sort of stuff. I'm not saying that's an excuse because we all have access to the internet. I believe he could have found out questions for this. And there are people reaching out to him now. I don't know quite where his, his current state is at the moment. But we must make sure that we, we never fall into that trap. He wrote this as well. This is telling. He says, he writes, all I know is what's true to me right now. And Christianity just seems to me like another religion at this point. You see, someone who can say that never understood Christianity, never understood Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus, what he did for us, and what his resurrection meant. You can't, you can't understand that and say words like that. But notice this, he says, what's true to me right now? Now, how many of you recognize that? That's what we call relativistic truth. It's a view that just rules in our culture at the moment. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for you. It basically denies that there are what we call objective truths. So I say from reading this man's words, he has been more influenced by the culture than he has by the word of God. And that is the reason why we see people fall. And that will continue to be the reason why we see people fall. Now, if I could put this in terms of our sort of one king's language, I would say they forgot about Jezebel. I'll explain to you what I mean by that. Just as Elijah forgot about Jezebel when he was having his victory on Mount Carmel, she wasn't present at the time. She was back in Jezreel. It was only after when he went to Jezreel, when Jezebel made that threat against him, 
that all of a sudden the victory is forgotten, the fear and the panic set in, and he's gone. He forgot about Jezebel. You see, Jezebel, you may have heard the term, it's a very kind of, sort of cliche term now in Christian circles. It's become associated with sort of all sorts of wickedness and promiscuity and prostitution and evil. Um, there's, you know, North Korea has the Jezebel missile, don't they? There's a, there's a lingerie line called Jezebel. There's all sorts of things, you know. People are called Jezebel as an insult. Um, we, call, we talk of the spirit of Jezebel. Has anyone ever heard that in Christian circles? The spirit of Jezebel. Now, the proper sort of understanding of that term is that you are speaking of the, the powers, the demonic or satanic powers that operate behind the world. We get glimpses of this occasionally in the Bible, don't we? But we must never forget that this is the reality of this world. There is a spiritual war going on. The spiritual war is raging behind the culture. And this is what we mean when we're talking about the spirit of Jezebel. Now, unfortunately, the way that this is often used, particularly in the sort of more charismatic end of the Christian church, the spirit of Jezebel is usually when a, a male leader will, will have a problem with a woman in the fellowship and he will then point and say, you have the spirit of Jezebel because you're not coming under my control. Unfortunately, that, that is, seems to be how the majority of the way this term is used. I don't, hope I don't need to explain to you. I'm not at all impressed by that sort of use of the term. There's maybe 1% grain of truth in the way they're, they're using it, but not enough to ever justify that sort of thing. We have to understand it biblically, because to say someone has a spirit of Jezebel is to say, <laughs> is to say a lot. And it's when we look at the character of Jezebel, which I know we've done a little bit already in 1 Kings, but I wanted to just go in a little bit deeper with it now. You see, Jezebel, she was the, the, the wife of Ahab. All through the Bible, Ahab and Jezebel, they are said to be responsible for really the downfall of Israel, some of the most evil acts in Israel's history. She was a daughter of a pagan king. Most scholars presume most likely a pagan priestess herself. She was a priestess of Baal. She seduced the king of Israel. They had a political marriage. She seduced the king, the king of Israel, Ahab, into idolatry and the worship of Baal and all Israel with him. She hated the worship of Yahweh, the true God, to the extent that to, in order to silence the prophets, she would kill them. She ruled over Ahab, made decisions for him. She persecuted Israel, anyone who did not fall in line, and she ruled by fear and intimidation, as we see from the response of Elijah here. She seduced people into false worship with sensuality and with temple prostitution. And as Randy taught on last week, the, the, the murder of children was often uh, quite a common place within these temples as an act of worship to Baal. She also was happy to murder political murders. She was also happy with government confiscation of land and property. We'll see what she does to Naboth in a chapter or so as we move forward. She was a very wicked woman. Now, that's one issue. That's a historical event that we're looking at now. The reason why this thing gets used in Christian language as sort of the spirit of Jezebel is because of something that Jesus teaches. And if you turn with me to the Revelation chapter 2, we'll, we'll just flesh this out a little bit because I think these are some hard things we're going to look at now, but they are, I believe, worth exploring if we want to make sure we connect the Bible to our culture. Revelation chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. These are Jesus's, um, they're sort of seven forgotten epistles in the New Testament. 
Everyone knows the epistles of Paul and the epistles of Peter, but no one knows really knows much about the epistles of Jesus. We have seven epistles here written by Jesus that are collected into the book of Revelation. These are letters to churches from Jesus. Let's read verse 19. Uh, so let's start verse 18. It says, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than that first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of, immor of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Strong words here from the Lord Jesus Christ. You can tell how seriously he is taking this charge of the tolerating the church, particularly tolerating the woman Jezebel. Now I see Jezebel very much alive and well today. You see, we have a political establishment that promotes anything but Christianity. We have the whole woke social justice warrior culture. If you've ever researched the roots of that movement, you, you dig behind a lot of the sort of pathetic virtue signaling that we have going on in our culture. I say that frankly, I'm fed up with this movement. You'll see that the one thing that they don't tolerate is biblical Christianity. And in fact, Israel is another thing they don't tolerate. They don't quite know how to deal with the Jewish state as one issue and Jews as another issue. This is exactly the same as Jezebel. You see, she hated the prophets of God for speaking the word of God. and She hated particularly Jewish people who were these prophets. This is one thing we have. We have a very radical sort of feminism that we call today. It seeks to obviously dissolve gender distinctions, which are founded on Genesis chapter 1, belittles God's role for biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. You see these, the oppressive patriarchy, these sorts of terms. These would be coming from that, the whole shout your abortion movement that's going on at the moment, this sort of proud, proud act of, of killing. These things are not really much different. They have a slightly different face on them, different movement different acceptance in the culture, but these are all the same things. There's a strong cultural push to silence those who talk the word of God. We've seen this being played out in our courts recently, four or five different cases. We've seen people arrested for speaking the word of God, people losing their jobs for praying with people. How is this any different to when Jezebel sent out her spies across the land of Israel and killed anyone who dared pray? We see it all through the word of God. We see this in the Persian Empire. I remember when Daniel was arrested for praying in his room, these are the same sorts of things. The mob rule by fear and intimidation. Now think of our culture today. It's very, you have to be very bold to come out with certain views in our culture today because you're probably going to get the social media mob on you. People are going to complain to your work. They're going to complain to your place of education. They're going to get you kicked off. It's just what happens today. If any of you follow the news, you see like the Antifa riots, the, the mob rule, basically. The police are powerless to stop these things. You have this thing called doxing, which is now you know, exposing donors who, who support politics that you don't agree with, exposing people online who basically have a different opinion than the mob. This is where we are, and this leads to violent protests. This is very much the spirit of Jezebel. We've had a radical shift in sexual morality, 
and this is obviously championed by many of the influencers in society, uh, particularly Hollywood, basically, the normalisation of pornography and all forms of sexual relationships. Let me just read to you a few stats. 64% of young people aged 13 to 24 actively seek out pornography on a weekly basis. A study of 14 to 19 year olds found that females who consumed pornographic videos were at much higher risk of becoming victims of assault and harassment. And obviously child pornography is in fact the fastest growing online business in the world today. Now, and you know, that's not even half the thing I could read. We've seen it in the news, haven't we? Who's been following the Epstein case? This billionaire sex trafficker who was responsible for basically providing the world's elites with their illicit needs was killed in prison under dubious circumstances. And, you know, these are the sorts of things that are going on. And obviously this sexual revolution has meant that the right to abortions has to be protected. How else are you supposed to deal with the fallout for these sorts of things if you can't kill all the unwanted people that you get? We see this just, you know, this is the root of what's happening. We may think that we've reached the new enlightened age with all these things going on. And all the language that we use tries to present that view. I want you to look behind it and underneath it. We know that this, the God of this world, small g, Satan, is in charge of this world in one sense at the moment. That's why he's called the God of this world, the, the Spirit. He's in charge, what I mean by that, is of the world system. He was the one who was empowering Jezebel and he's the one who empowers a lot of the stuff we see going on today. Remember what Jesus said to the church. He, he, he rebuked them for tolerating the woman Jezebel. And one of the dangers that now, I kind of expect this stuff from the culture, you know, this is, we understand this all through the Bible, we see that this is what a, the culture will be like in many ways. But the problem is, the problem was this for Israel, when Israel started acting like the culture, that's when God had to step in and judge. And Jesus is saying the exact same thing to the church here. When you start tolerating the woman Jezebel, that's when I'm going to have to step in and judge. Now let me ask you, do you see any of these things creeping into the church? I'd I pretty much could find you Christian movements, websites of every one of those things I've just mentioned who are either promoting it or extremely uh, mixed with it. And this is a problem. Now, what's the answer to this? Now, firstly, we need to understand the warfare. This is a matter of spiritual warfare. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, the Apostle Paul writes. We wrestle against principalities and powers, the spiritual forces of wickedness in this age, as he writes in Ephesians 6. The reason he writes this is then he goes on to tell us we need to put on the full armour of God. Now, quite simply, what that means is not that we, we literally pretend to put on all these different pieces. It just means get serious about Christianity. It, it's actually just a call to discipleship. Get serious about the Bible, get serious about following Jesus. Understand that this very unusual period of history that we've had where you're sort of able to have a sort of vague Christianity where you can have kind of half feet in both worlds, that will probably come to an end soon because lines are being drawn all the time. We see it in our culture today, lines are being drawn and you will probably come up against one of them soon where you'll have to make a choice. Do you follow Jezebel or do you follow the Lord God? And these are issues that I believe we all need to be prepared for. But I can tell you, if you do not do that now, when it's crunch time, you will not do it then. And this is what Jesus is warning about when he says, don't tolerate the woman Jezebel. So these things are, are pretty serious. Um, I know that was probably a little heavy for a Wednesday night, but let's, let's move on with our text now and we'll see what happens. So Elijah seems to fear the threat of Jezebel. He flees. 
Now, another thing we can point out here, fear is obviously a very powerful motivator and can cause us to act quite illogically in some circumstances, and it can be quite crippling. Any of you who have ever sort of had anxiety or panic attacks will know that you know, fear can literally bring you to a standstill and, and stop your, your life in many ways. Um, we, we find that it's a powerful uh, emotion that we have. Another reason we can look at when we see Elijah here, why he's at the stage where he's saying, I want to die now, is simply because of disappointment and discouragement. You see, he probably thought that his victory on Mount Carmel, this amazing victory that he had, this high moment, would lead to the repentance of Israel, sort of the confession of the sins of the nation, maybe even Ahab would, would start following the Lord again. But actually, in reality, the fruit of that great event appears to be very little. We don't ever really see much fruit from it in the Bible, except that 450 prophets of Baal were taken off this earth. And this left Elijah deeply disappointed and discouraged to this point where he didn't really know what his purpose was anymore. And he even said he wanted to die. Now, I don't believe he was necessarily saying he actually wanted to die, but he's expressing his emotion in a very outward way. But let's just talk about this for a little bit. Suicide. Overall, suicide is the 11th leading cause of death in the US, and it's the third leading cause of death between young people aged 15 to 24. And this is in America. You know, every, with all the mass shootings and all the guns and all the things you see in the news, it's suicide that is the third leading cause of death among young people. And most people, well, there's, there's probably a connection there that USA is also the most medicated country in the world. I'm talking about psychotropic drugs. These are drugs that alter your state of mind. Um, many people, many studies have proved the connection between these sorts of things. Um, depression and substance abuse are, are long associated together. 90% of all suicides usually involve either a psychotropic drug or a case of depression. Like I say the two go together. In the last 45 years, suicide rates have increased by 60% worldwide. Suicide is now among the three leading causes of death in the world between male and female aged 15 to 44. Psychology Today did a study trying to predict so they could stop suicides. They did this by analysing suicide notes that had been left, either attempted or successful suicides. The end result of their study was this. In general, people do not attempt suicide solely because of pain. It is because they don't believe there is a reason to live and the world will be better off without them. Basically, they have no meaning and no purpose to their life. Now, I know I've shared that fact with you before. Let me just combine that with a statistic that came out just yesterday. This was a recent poll that was done in the United Kingdom. It says this, 89%, that's nearly sort of nine out of 10, basically, young people aged 16 to 29, quote, believe that their lives have no meaning or purpose. 89%. The chief reason for suicide is people believe their lives have no meaning or purpose. 89% of young people don't believe their life has any meaning and purpose. You don't really have to be a genius to connect the dots here. Another statistic that goes with this is of that same group that were polled for that survey, only 1% of that group identified as going to church. Only 1%. Now, as much as people will not like to make the connection there, I believe there's a very definite connection, a belief in the almighty God and the purpose that being a Christian gives you is a strong motivator against these sorts of things. But I would say just from these little things, remember Jesus brings life, he, he came to give us life in its fullest. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. It brings a culture of life with it. When you take that away, you do get a culture of death. 
and you will see that happen. And I would say because of that, that's Jezebel's culture. Jezebel is very much alive and well in our culture. But thankfully, in our context here today, God obviously had other things planned for Elijah. And not only was Elijah, did he not die then, Elijah was actually one, someone who never died. And I love this sort of mercy of God that we see here. You know the story, Elijah is a few chapters we're going to see. He's going to be taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. He never died. Let's read, let's go on in our chapter, verses 5 to 18. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Notice it's here in the wilderness during this deep time of despair that Elijah experiences an intimate encounter with God. And it actually says in the text that it was the angel of the Lord. Now, if you know that phrase from the Old Testament, we see it in Genesis and in Joshua, the angel of the Lord is what we call a theophany. That is usually considered to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ at this time, because the text often associates the angel of the Lord with attributes of deity, which obviously it would not do if it was just a regular angel. So in this deep time, the Lord actually visits Elijah and notice what he does, first of all, nothing really too monumental. He's, he look, he's basically like, you're exhausted, you're hungry, and that's causing you a problem. And he meets his physical needs. Meeting physical needs is very important. Most missionary work is actually started by meeting people's physical needs. And it's finished by meeting their spiritual needs. And that's what I believe we see here. This is why so much of the modern missionary movement from like the 17th and 18th, 19th century, people like the, the early days of the Salvation Army was so successful because they were meeting people's physical needs and then they were giving them their spiritual needs too. The problem with a lot of it today is because we don't, we're not really allowed to speak openly and evangelize that they are just meeting physical needs and there's no spiritual need being given to them too. And that's when you become really not much different. You're not offering much different than regular charities, but that's a side point. But we see here God meeting Elijah's needs. And notice sort of the parallels here with Moses. If, you, if you're, you're subtle, you'll, you'll pull them out. Both Elijah and Moses confronted a wicked ruler. Both gave powerful demonstrations of God's power over other deities. Both received supernatural sustenance on a wilderness journey, and both arrived at Mount Horeb. Horeb is another word for Sinai, so you put that connection there, where they experienced a profound encounter with God, and both appointed a successor to take their place. So sort of Moses, the chief of the prophets, is now sort of Elijah is now being put up in the sort of like the line of Moses, so to speak, which will ultimately lead to Jesus Christ's line when we see John the Baptist, the prophet, announce the coming of Jesus. Remember that prophecy in Deuteronomy, a prophet like unto me, prophet like Moses will come in the future, speaking of Jesus. Let's read verses 9 to 11. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He says, I came to a cave. Now in the Hebrew, it actually literally reads the cave. 
it's a definite article in front of it. Most scholars presume this is actually speaking of the exact same cave that Moses had his encounter in the cleft of that rock all those years ago. Again, sort of carrying on this Moses-Elijah connection here. But God asks him, you know, what are you doing here? You'll often see this when God approaches. He doesn't immediately come with, you know, his word. He often gives the person a, an opportunity to speak and respond. You see, God knows everything about, it's not like he needs to ask the question. God already knows. He knew everything about Jacob at Bethel, about Jonah on the sea, about Moses at Midian, John in Patmos, Elijah in the cave, and obviously all of us right here, right now. And Elijah basically says to him, look, I've been faithful. Nothing's gone my way so far. I am all alone now. Jezebel's after me and I'm out here hiding in the wilderness. What's going on is basically what he's saying here. He's been faithful to the Lord and he's been isolated from the culture. And this is, again, I believe, a very important lesson to us today, because if what we're saying about Jezebel is in fact true, we should very much expect the same sort of thing in some ways today. Being faithful to the Lord can often isolate you from the culture. Not always, but in many ways it does. And when this does happen, there are two responses that you can do. There are just two, two things, really, that you can do. One, you can compromise with the culture in order to be accepted and to remove the isolation. That's a route that a lot of people go. Or two, you can journey on to Horeb, to Sinai, and you can have that personal encounter with God. And how important is the body of Christ in this? Because we get isolation from, from being faithful and standing out against the culture, but God has given an antidote to that, and that is the body of Christ. That is one of the purposes why we have this community of saints, because that is why we come to church to wash our feet, to encourage one another, to be fed the word of God, to give out our gifts to the church, to build up, to edify. That's what it's for, because we are going to be isolated when we stand against Jezebel, just like Elijah was in the culture today. That is one of the blessings of Christian church. And when you meet Christians who are either on the edge of church, who are unable to be happy in church, who, who say that they don't really need to go to church, they're kind of lone rangers, they do it on their own. Now, I'm not saying you can't be a Christian and, and, and live like that, but I'm saying you're on a very, very shaky path and you're not living in the fullness of all the blessings that God has, has promised for you. It's a very sad way to live your Christian life, and it will make you easy picking for that lion that prowls around, waiting to devour those on the edge. He says, they seek my life. Now let's read 11 to 14. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle breeze. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone left. And they seek my life to take it away. So God knew that after hearing the, the double answer to that question, the discouragement in Elijah's voice, that what he needed was obviously immediate physical sustenance. And like I said, this is pointing to our need for spiritual sustenance. You often see that connection in the Bible the bread from heaven that came down to the Israelites, 
Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is always the connection you find in the Bible. And now God meets Elijah's spiritual needs. What he really needed was a personal encounter with God. Experience is important. We don't want to be led by experiences, but to have experiences in our Christian life is quite important. And you find them by dwelling and seeking the presence of God. Now, I find this interesting. This is a very famous part, the still small voice, you know, still small voice of calm, that sort of thing, the gentle breeze. It says in mine, the gentle whisper, some of your translations will probably say, God first showed Elijah where not to look for this encounter with God. Don't look in the wind, don't look in the earthquake, don't look in the fire, because I'm not in those things. Three things, actually, typically, where pagans looked to find the presence of God or as a manifestation of his power. And again, maybe this was done to illustrate the sort of false conception that Elijah had when he was on Mount Carmel, that this would cause national repentance. But he says, after these things, you get the gentle sound of blowing, the still small voice. And this, I believe, is the secret to biblical transformation. There's nothing radical really about it. There's no mystery. There's no secret, as you, some authors might like to say. There's no secret message of Jesus, lost message of Paul, all these books that have these kind of stupid names and they sell millions of copies and they're full, filled with nonsense. It's from the Word of God. You see, the secret to biblical transformation, it is found in the voice of God. This is what we see here with Elijah. This is what transformed him. This is what set him back on his path. This is what reinvigorated him to go out and continue and finish his mission. It was hearing the voice of the Lord. In this stage, it was the spoken word directly from heaven. In our age, we have the word of God given to us in the inspired revelation that we call the 66 books of the Bible, the word of God. God speaking, however quietly, directly to our hearts is that which affects true spiritual change. What does it say in 1 Peter? You have not been born again by seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. The living and enduring word of God. That is how you get born again. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, it says in the Psalms. You see, quite simply, that is how you overcome Jezebel. You live in obedience to the word of God and you do it by the power of the Spirit. And that just means to be controlled, to be seeking his presence, seeking his face. You see, there are always going to be those who seek signs, those who associate devotion with the great acts of piety and praise or the great miraculous gifts, the visible manifestations, the miraculous, and quite frankly, sometimes the darn right crazy. And if you've ever seen some of the YouTube clips, you know what I'm talking about, the, cra the crazy. We get it in Christian circles, and I believe some of that's quite similar to what Elijah was seeing right here on Mount Carmel. Who knows the hymn? It's an old hymn. We don't sing it much today. I remember it from school, school days, but it's called Dear Lord and Father of Mankind. Forgive our foolish ways. Reclothe us in our rightful mind. In purer lives thy service find in deeper reverence and praise. The last verse of that hymn, it reads like this. Breathe through the hearts of our desire, our desire thy coolness and thy balm. Let sense be dumb, let flesh retire. Speak through the earthquake, wind and fire, O still small voice. Of calm. Now the hymn writer is obviously drawing from 1 Kings 19 here. The man who wrote this hymn, the story behind this hymn is interesting. He's, he's called John Whittier. He was a Quaker. And um, he wrote, the hymn is taken from a poem that he wrote. The poem is an unusual poem. It's called The Brewing of Soma. And Soma, this Soma was a, basically it was a drug that the Vedic priests used to use in India 
to, if you've ever seen one of their sort of the festivals that they have, to whip themselves up into a drunk frenzy. This is associated today with the festival, you know, where they stick knives through their jaws and you've probably seen videos when they lash themselves and they march down the street bloodletting and these sorts of things. I see this as being very, very similar to what the prophets of Baal were doing, you know, in the same sort of, it's the same sort of spirit behind these sorts of things. Now, when John Greenleaf Whittier, this man who wrote this hymn, when he witnessed that, it was the soma was this, this liquid that they would drink to intoxicate themselves. And then they did that. This ritual was all about experiencing the divine in, in, in sort of the Vedic religion. You would, you would go into these trances and these, do go through these rituals and then you would experience the divine. Now, what Whittier was making the point is that he saw parts of the church in his day and he said they were doing the same thing. At his age, one of the big things was actually music, different forms of music in the church and different forms of incense. And he, he made the, the point of writing this poem was to try and educate the church about these issues. And I wonder what he would say today with the smoke machines, the lights, the hysteria and some of the stuff that we see even more now. And because his day to us <laughs> would not be an issue. But for, for now, it's gone much further. And his answer to this was that the true presence of God is to be found in the still small voice described in 1 Kings chapter 19. And then he wrote that hymn from his poem there. You see now after the encounter with God, we see the commission. Elijah's ministry was not done. And let's just read up the final few verses and then we'll be, we'll be done. Uh, let's read 15 to 18. Then the Lord said to him, go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel king over Aram, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meloah you shall anoint as prophet in your place, and it shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel, Jehu will put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. And yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. These are the final few verses now when the Lord speaks. So he says, well, basically he gives Elijah work. He says, you know, you're not staying here in the wilderness. You're not dying. There are actually still some things that I need you to do, even if you can't necessarily see what's going on right now. And this is very practical in some respects. Work or being busy. And there's a reason why they say idle hands, the devil's playthings. Many of you have probably found that. Quite often when you've actually got nothing to do, you use your time much worse than you would if you're actually really busy and you only have, I find this when, if I have lots of time to prepare for a study, I'll usually end up not doing a particularly good job. You find ways to procrastinate and just do other things. And that's if I'm being generous to myself. But when you know you've got a deadline to meet, sometimes it's much easier just to be busy and to, to, to get the stuff done. You don't have time for these distractions. He gives Elijah work. He says there's things to do. One of the reasons why we do this is because it, when you're actually focusing on work, you're usually doing it for other people or in the service of a business or other people. This is why vocational work is so important. It's why the Protestant reformers put such a high priority on actually teaching Christians to be Christians in their workplace, that every Christian was a minister in the place where they were, not just the pastors in the pulpit. This is sort of where it comes from. So anyway, he, he was to anoint Haziel, king of Syria, We'll learn about him in a few more chapters. He was also to anoint Jehu as king over Israel to replace the wicked king Ahab. Now, this is significant because it is actually Jehu is the one who ends up killing Jezebel. 
you'll read, we'll read about this in a few chapters, it's, a, it's a, one of those sort of a sad end to this wicked woman. As we see her, she's thrown from the window and she's by her own help, she's killed and they can't even bury her body because by the time they get it to it, the dogs have ripped her apart at the bottom of the gates of the city. That's her end there. But it was actually Elisha who was responsible for anointing Jehu, who was the one who would bring the end to Jezebel. So you see how Elijah thought that nothing was going on, there was no fruit from his ministry. He stopped halfway through and had this bout of depression and God had to meet him and say, actually, can you just continue, please? You're almost at the end of your service. There's much more work to be done. These things will happen soon. When someone in Israel finally heard God's voice, Jezebel was destroyed. Now Jehu is an interesting character. I won't say much about him because we'll cover it in weeks to come. But notice he wasn't a politician and he wasn't a king, but he was made king of Israel. This is very unusual because obviously we know the principal kings have to be sort of be born in, don't you? But this guy wasn't a king. He was brought in from outside. He was actually a military leader. He was a, he was a warrior. And I find this a very interesting spiritual typology. In order to defeat Jezebel, you didn't need a king, a politician, you needed a warrior. Someone who understood the warfare. And this is us today again. In order to defeat Jezebel, we must understand the spiritual warfare going on and we must arm ourselves accordingly. That sounds like sort of very aggressive talk. When you understand what I mean, it's just simply that principle again of living and obeying the word of God and arming yourselves with a faith. These are the things. And then the final things, he goes on and says, the 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee, he lets Elisha know, obviously, that um, he's not alone. You're not alone. There are, in fact, 7,000. This is what we call the remnant of Israel. You'll notice this theme of the remnant, that is the faithful amongst the apostate, is something that's carried throughout the whole of the Bible now. And we even have the remnant of Israel today. They're called Messianic Jews today. These are Jews who believe in Jesus. They are part of this remnant that we see started here right back in Elisha's day. 1 Kings 19. Uh, Let's go to 19 and 21, finish these last two verses now. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12th. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. So we see he has this mantle. He's now anointed. This is the anointing of Elisha. As we move into sort of two kings, Elisha obviously becomes the prominent person that we start learning about. The, the, the mantle was this sort of, sort of like a, a, a sash, I guess, that would go over them, sort of usually made of, of uh, skin and it was very hairy and it was very identifiable. You see someone coming with this clothing and you know he was a prophet. And it's given here, you, you, when the story of Elijah, go, when he goes up to heaven, it makes a point of saying what's left is his mantle. And then obviously Elisha was the one who takes this. Now, when you get to the New Testament, some people speculate that when John the Baptist suddenly emerges from the wilderness and he's immediately identifiable as a prophet coming from the wilderness, which you think, why is that? I mean, there were plenty of people who would have looked like they were living fairly rough lives in those days. Um, Most people say it's because he had one of these mantles on. Some people even speculate that it actually was the mantle of Elisha passed down through generations of prophets, which is why people confuse him with Elijah, because he was to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. 
speculation, but I find it quite intriguing. Elisha immediately recognizes the call and he says goodbye to his family. Again, very reminiscent of the call of the disciples. Remember, Jesus came to the shore, he says, come follow me. Immediately the disciples drop their nets and they follow Jesus Christ. Same sort of thing here. He says goodbye to his family, and then it makes his point of saying that he sacrificed his oxen. He had 12 oxen, that's a large number. He was obviously quite wealthy at this time. He immediately kills two of them, offers a sacrifice. And it also says that in order to burn them, he used the plough. It says he used the, the implement of this wooden plough that would have been on their back. He chopped that up and he burnt it to make the sacrifice. Now this is a good illustration that he was all in. Okay? He wasn't going back to his old way of life. This was a clean cut that he was saying. He had the call. He heard the still small voice of God through Elijah, Elijah and he left for the ministry. And this is a very good example for us. We hear the message of Jesus Christ. We become new creations. The old is gone and the new is here. And then we are called to walk in newness of life. And we, we don't go back to the plough, so to speak. We need to walk in newness of life. And that is really the Christian life. And we follow that walk all the way until the day that Jesus calls us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. Uh, I thank you for this text, Lord, for the truths it contains. I pray that these things would sink into our hearts, Lord, and that we would... Uh, live in light of the reality of your calling, Father. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.